This morning is the start of Advent. I don't know if you knew that, um, but it is. And uh, this is the traditional time in the church calendar where we begin the countdown to Christmas. It kind of feels like you can say the word Christmas now without people wincing and thinking, oh no, uh, we haven't done any Christmas shopping. Uh, I keep telling our kids that we're buying a church building for Christmas, but it's not, it's not washing. Um, um, but no, we haven't started. Um, but this season of Advent is, is, is really that word Advent means uh, arrival or coming, you know, God's arrival. Um, it's a season where we're looking towards uh, God arriving as a baby uh, in humble circumstances uh, as, as Jesus. And so um, as we open up the scriptures over the next few weeks, we're going to be just really considering the season that we're in, this reality that God came and walked amongst us. A guy called Kierkegaard, he was a, a Danish philosopher and theologian. He, he told quite a famous story of a wealthy king. And this king was more wealthy than anybody before him. He had everything he, he wanted. He had everything that was at his disposal as a king. But the thing that he wanted the most he didn't have, and that was he wanted a wife. He wanted to find love. Now, it wasn't a lack of opportunity. You know, he's king. He could have his choice of any number of females in his kingdom. But because of his wealth, because of his stature, the thing that he was concerned about, would they love him? Would they love him for who he was? Or would they love him because of, of, of what he represented? You know, would, would a suitable partner come along, but just because they wanted to have all the latest things and the latest opportunities? Or would they care for him? And then on one, one occasion, this, this king was outside of the palace and he saw a simple peasant woman. There was nothing special about this peasant woman, but for some reason, there was something about, about her that caught his eye, his eye. And as he watched her from a distance, as he observed this peasant woman, he realised he was falling in love with her. Why he loved her was hard to explain. She had no wealth, no social connections, no political influence. It didn't seem like she had anything to offer him. But he loved her regardless. But how could he express his love for her? And so he asked his advisors, what should I do? And they said, well, you're the king. You've got all the power in the world. Why don't you just command her to love you? Why don't you just make her love you? But he resisted. He said, I can't take away her freedom. I can't take away her choice. And 
And so his advisor suggested, well, maybe you should look somewhere else. Maybe you should consider somebody else. But he couldn't do that. He tried for weeks and weeks, but he couldn't stop thinking about this peasant woman. And then he began to think, well, maybe the best way to show her love was to shower her with gifts. Maybe you could, you know, send her secret gifts in the post with little messages declaring his love to her. But he just didn't know how to respond. And as he began to ponder, how would this woman know that he loved her? He realised the only thing he could do. The only thing he could do was to take off his royal robes and leave the palace and live in the dump with this peasant woman. And so that's what he did. He, he, he put aside, he put aside his royalty. And he left the palace and he scratched a living in the dirt, wearing rags, so he could be with the one he loved. It was the only way. Kierkegaard told that story as a, really to capture the picture of what God has done in this, this season of Advent. This peasant woman represents you and I. And this king who takes off his kingly robes, this king who comes and scratches amongst the dirt to, to be with the one he loves, is Jesus. He becomes like us. And you know, the most amazing part of this story is that it was his choice. It was his choice to put aside who he was. It was his choice to step into our world. The God of this universe puts on human flesh. What kind of God does a thing like that? What kind of God would do this crazy thing? What does this tell us about God? What does this tell us about who he is? Well, this view of God through the person of Jesus is really what separates us, isn't it, from all the other world religions and philosophies and faiths and all the things that talk about different ways to God. The thing that separates us from all of that is this God who steps down to be on our level. And so we we worship a God who enters into the human story. He enters in to our story. That makes him a fairly unique God, doesn't it? He's a fairly unique God. And, and that's the God that we believe in. That's the God that we've been declaring this morning. A God that steps down and puts on human flesh. And the gospel writers capture this in different ways. But I guess the, the most famous gospel writer who captures this, is John. And so we're going to be in John chapter 1. And I just want to look at a few verses there.
John chapter 1 and verse 1, it says, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. Through him all things were made. Without him nothing was made that has been made. In him was life. And that life was the light of all mankind. The light shines in the darkness and the darkness has not overcome. So in this passage we see this wonderful imagery of Jesus as the word. And this word is there at the beginning. Right at the beginning, there in creation. And, this, and it shows us that Jesus is, is fully God. Um, but he's fully God who becomes man and he enters in to our reality. But the thing I want to focus on this morning is, is verse 14. And it says this, it says, The word became flesh and made his dwelling amongst us. We have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only Son, who come from the Father, full of grace and truth. The word became flesh and made his dwelling amongst us. Eugene Peterson, in the message, kind of paraphrased, version of the Bible, some of you don't think it's the Bible, but um, in the paraphrased version of the Bible, he says this, he says, the word became flesh and blood and moved into the neighborhood. I just love that imagery, that God became flesh and blood and he moved in. He moved in. He moved into the neighborhood. You know, this God of the universe. He didn't stand at a distance, you know, issuing moral edicts or philosophies into his creation. Instead, he enters into creation. You know, we could stop there, couldn't we? We could, that, that could be enough this morning. This, this God of the universe steps in to all that we are. And the reality is, is that God knows what it's like to be me and you. He knows, he knows what it likes. It means Jesus knows what it means to feel tired. Anybody feel tired today? I do. We had a Star Wars marathon yesterday. Um, so I, I, I'm feeling it, but, um, he knew what it meant to be feel tired. He knew what it meant to be hungry. He knew what it means to be a teenage boy. You know, teenage boys, when they uh, experience a woman for the first time and they're full of adrenaline when she walks in the room. <laughs> he knew that feeling. I'm pretty convinced of it. He knew all our stuff. But not only did he know it, he chose to know it. <laughs> he chose to put himself in that situation. And that's what sets us apart. That's what sets apart what we believe from other faiths and traditions and philosophies and what other people have to say. He 
It's in this demonstration that he reveals the humility, the generosity, the compassion, the mission, and the pursuit of God for people. That he's, he's after people. That you and I are valuable to him. We're precious to him. We're so precious to him that he would come and be like us so that he could reshape human history. So why would a God do that? Why would, why would he step into our reality? And the reason he steps in is because he, he comes to change everything. He comes to make all things new. You see, our, our religious philosophies, our, our doctrines, our, our theology and our understanding of how things are, they're only important as long as they point to Jesus. Because he is the one at the point where everything changes. He's, he's the one. Uh, when, when God moves into the neighborhood, when he takes on flesh, he's the one who rewrites history for us. He rewrites the story that we're in. And so what difference does that make? What, what change does that bring about? Well, first of all, it shows us that God is near. That God is, God is near us. He's, he's able to address the issues of our hearts. And Christmas reminds us that, that God is near. That God knows what it means to be afraid, to feel angry, to feel tempted in every way. Not in some lofty theological, uh, theoretical way, but he knows. He knows. He actually knows what it feels like to have a body. You know, he actually knows what it feels like to feel things in his hands, to see things with his eyes. He knows real pain. As the, the writer of Hebrews says, for we do not have a high priest, Hebrews 4.15, who is unable to feel sympathy for our weaknesses. But we have one who has been tempted in every way, just as we are. That changes everything, doesn't it? Especially at Christmas. You know, Christmas is the one season when we're often reminded that not everything is always how we hoped it would be. I don't know if you've noticed that, but Christmas has a tendency of bringing that out, doesn't it? It's often reported that at Christmas, suicide rates go up. And um, I, think, I think the reality of that is because, you know, we have to come to terms with the fact that life really isn't always what we hope for. You know, we might have to come to terms with the fact that there are people who are with us this last Christmas that won't be here this Christmas. We have to deal with the fact that families aren't always what we hoped for. You know, there's dysfunction in families, isn't there? There's pain in families. There's dynamics in every family that are often complicated. Tammy and I have been rejected by all our families this year, and we're having Christmas on our own. Oh, no, that's changed. There you go. Uh, (laughs) 
I'm having Christmas on my own. <laughs> damn, damn. <laughs> But Christmas, does it? it has a, a habit of highlighting some of our dysfunction. And if we don't have our own dysfunction, then just watch EastEnders. Because that seems to be fairly dysfunctional, doesn't it? Every, every Christmas. Um, there, there are kids that we wish we had who weren't there. There are kids that we do have that we wish weren't there. And um, there are gifts that we wish we could buy. Now, how many of us wish we could just buy all the things that we long to buy for our family and friends, but we, we just know we can't do it? See, Christmas is often a season full of dysfunction and disappointment. You know, most of our Christmases are often like the Griswolds and not a Norman Rockwell painting. Most of our Christmases are a little bit dysfunctional. You know, it's not kids on sledges with beautiful Christmas trees all of the time, is it? And you see, God enters into that reality. That's what he enters into. He enters into the human story in the middle of a war zone as a refugee born in a barn with lots of animal poop around him. The smell of animals around him. And no royalty, no important people come to, sh- to visit him. None of them show up. But instead, some foreign magicians and kings come from afar. And some shepherds who have been working in the fields. They're the ones that arrive. And that's where God chooses to enter into human history. He chooses to meet us in that messy place. He chooses to be near us in the mess. We don't have to have it all together. We don't have to have, you know, everything, all our ducks in a row. We can have challenges. We can be dealing with disappointments and Jesus enters into the mess. That's where the nearness of God is at Christmas, isn't it? It's in the messy places. That's what Christmas is about. And so as people following Jesus, as people learning to imitate him, to be like him, to extend his kingdom on earth, the implications are that we're meant to be people who are found in the mess too. We're meant to be there in the mess too. And so to to be the church that I think we're meant to be engaged in our world. I don't think we're meant to engage in the world on the terms of this is what we hope the world is like. I think we're meant to engage in the world with the reality of, of what it is. You know, the technical term that theologians use at this season is the incarnation. That, that God comes and dwells amongst us in the mess. And the result is that as his church, as people called to follow him, we're also called to be incarnational, aren't we? We're called to be incarnational 
in our world. Just as Jesus entered into the world and changes human history, we as a church are called to enter in and change the redemptive history of the world around us. Because the church exists, because you and I are here, our town should be different. That's the reality, isn't it? Because we exist, because we do what we do, the places where we dwell, our neighbourhoods, our workplaces, our streets, the places where we drag our kids to school, those places should be different because you and I are there. You see, if, if all the, the sum of what we do is just what we do here on a Sunday morning, I, I'm guessing that all we're doing is having some mildly interesting Christian meetings. I'm not sure that's church. I'm not sure that that's all church is. You see, the, the church, in my mind, is meant to be the people so full of God's kingdom and the life of Jesus that they have his grace and mercy and healing and restoration on tap to give away to others. That we're to incarnate the spaces where God has put us. You know, last week Pete was talking about just loving our neighbour. And what if we just started by loving our actual neighbours? That God has placed us in a street with at least eight people around us that don't know him. What would it mean for us just to incarnate the streets where we live? So wherever we find ourselves, we're called to make a difference. We're called to be different as we follow Jesus in those places. And you see, the result is, is that things change. Things become different. We get to change the redemptive history of an entire town. That's a good goal to have, isn't it? We're going to change the redemptive history of our entire town. I think that's what it means for us to be church. I think that's what it means for us to be God's people in this place. Oops, sorry, my notes have gone off on it. And the reality of that means is we have to be fully present. We have to inhabit the spaces where God has placed us. Dallas Willard, uh, he says this, God has yet to bless anyone except where they actually are. And if we faithlessly discard situation after situation, moment after moment as not being right, we will simply have no place to receive the kingdom in our lives. For those situations and moments are our lives. That we're meant to be the people of God where we are. We're meant to take the moments that we have, the, the ordinary moments, and bring the kingdom into them. A pastor uh, in New York City called Tim Keller, he um, leads a church in New York City and um, I was listening to some of his sermons but he, he said this, he says, most people come to New York for what they can get from New York, money, fame, power, prestige. What I want to ask us as the people of God in New York, not what will you get from New York but what are you going to give to New York 
to make it a different place. That because God's people are present here, this city should be transformed. And stop thinking about this as just a place that you're passing through. And that some of you, uh, and will some of you please begin to believe that this is the place that you inhabit for the sake of God's kingdom and his glory. And that will bring transformation forever. And I heard that and I thought, you know what, I think Northampton needs that too. I don't know about New York, but Northampton needs that too. You, you, know, you might live in Northampton because you chose to live near the M1. Okay? Because um, you thought, I can get to work easy if I live in Northampton. It's a good central location. Um, you, you may have, you know, come here and you're thinking, you know, this is just a stepping through place. You know, it's, it's just a step in, in my journey. I'm not going to be here forever. This, the, I'm, and when something else comes along, when something better arrives, I'm going to go there. But what if where we live right now was a place we chose to inhabit? What if, you know, being in Northampton, which I think is a great place to live, by the way, I, I chose to come here. Um, what if, um, you know, it wasn't about what we get from where we live, but what we give? What if we was to make this space, our church, this community, this town, our home? Often I hear, I hear some of you, and I'm not picking on people, but I hear some of you particularly have come from university and you live here and you say, I'm going home this weekend. Really? Is this not your home? What would it mean to make a place your home? What if you chose to live somewhere not because it had a great kitchen or a wonderful back garden? But it was about how you could live out the kingdom of God in that place. What if it was about being part of the changing the redemptive history of a neighborhood? Well, what about your job? What about if your job wasn't just a job to move you on the ladder or it, it will do until something better comes along? What if your job was to be a place where, you know what, if you left there, you would be sorely missed because you being in that job makes that workplace a completely different environment? What would it really mean for you to inhabit the spaces that God's put you in? just as he did, as he was incarnational to the world? How would it look like for you to be incarnational to your neighbourhood, to your friends, to your workplaces, to the schools where you take your kids? What if 50 of us in this room took that seriously? What if just 50 of us said, okay, you know, well, that's what I'm going to do? Would we see some change? Would we see something happen? Because I think that's what church is really meant to be. It's the incarnational body of Christ on the earth. It's the, it's the body of Christ making its dwelling in the neighborhood. That's, that's the kind of church that we've called to, we're called to be. 
And that's why God came and he dwelt amongst us. He dwelt amongst us and he took on human flesh. He moves into the mess and he begins to redeem and restore lives. And that's what we want to be about. You know, the question we ask ourselves, don't we? Every new year, we ask ourselves this question. If we cease to exist tomorrow, you know, say, you know, we get to the end of this year and we run off with all the building money. Um, how many joking? <laughs> all the trustees are like going, <laughs> 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 um, but we get to the end of this year and we decide, you know what? We've had enough. You know, we want to go and live somewhere sunny. We're going to close the church down. And the question we always ask is, if we did that, would anybody other than those in in this room notice? Would anybody else, other than those that gather here on a Sunday morning, would anybody notice? Because I think that's what measures our success, isn't it? It's not how many bums we get on seats. You know, it's not how many people we can get through the door. We were we were joking with some guys this week, you know, how do we get more men in the church? And my suggestion was table dancers. Um, it, it would certainly get a crowd. Um, uh, I'm only joking, okay? Um, but it, does it matter? What does it matter how many people show up here on a Sunday morning if the world out there don't even know we exist? What does it matter? It matters for nothing, doesn't it? And so as we, as we continue, as we look to Christmas and as we look to the new year and we look to buying a building and all these things that God is doing amongst us, they're all exciting things. But let's not forget we're called to be the incarnate body of Christ in this town. We're called to be his body. We're called to incarnate the places where we, where we find ourselves. And so, you know, as we look to next year, what is it we want to see happen? We're going to move into a building. We're going to inhabit a physical space. You know, does it just become a nice meeting space? You know, does it just become this nice place where we no longer have to set things up? Um, we will have to set things up still. But is that all it is? Are we investing all this money just so we can have... It's not a particularly nice-looking building, but just so we can have a presence right in the town centre. It's none of those things, is it? We're seeing this building just as a tool for us to be who we're meant to be. That we're meant to be Jesus' hands and feet to the world around us. That we're meant to be the church that goes and touches the lives of as many people as we can. I've got no, I've got no aspiration, I've got no goal to be the best church in town. Okay? What I want to be is the best church for our town. And so what does that mean? One of the things that we've been really challenged by is our friends at the Causeway Coast Vineyard. And uh, some of you will know some of their story, but, you know, they are a church that inhabit their community. Their city, uh, Coleraine, 
That's about 60,000 people living there. And probably about 3,000 people go to their church. So, you know, you do the maths. There's quite a significant number of the population that go to the church. There's a good chance if you walk out your door in Coleraine, you will meet someone from Causeway Coast Vineyard. And they're doing loads of stuff to touch their community. But about two years ago, they just seemed to see God do something amazing. And they'd always seen people come to faith. About, about ten years into their journey, they felt the Lord challenged them and say, how many people do you want to see come to faith? And they, they said, we want to see a hundred people come to faith this year. And so they prayed and they did all that they did and they saw a hundred people come to faith. And then, and they just continued every year seeing a hundred people come to faith. And then about two years ago, something shifted. And in the last two years, they've seen 4,000 people in Coleraine come to faith. 4,000 in a little tiny town like that. But they're a church who are learning to incarnate their community. They're a church that's learning to be present amongst the people. You know, those 4,000 people haven't come to faith in church. In, in church, not, anyway. They haven't come to faith in the church building. They've come to faith in the streets. They've come to faith where people have been walking their dogs and they've met someone. They say, oh, you look like you're limping. Can I pray for you? They get healed and they lead them to Jesus. Just normal people. You know, not professionals like me. Some of you thinking you're a professional. Um, just normal people. So what does that mean for us? I don't know if you know this. In the last month, we've seen three people come to faith in Jesus. That's exciting, isn't it? But we want to see more. We want to see more people. What would it mean for us to see 50 people come to faith next year? Could it be done? So what, you know, what are we going to believe for? What are we going to believe for? That as we seek to be the incarnate body of Christ, as we seek to be all that Jesus has called us to be in this town, what do we believe for? And so my wife has told me I've got to nail our colours to the mast. And that's what we're going to pray. We're going to pray that we see 50 people come to faith next year. Audacious. Maybe. But let's pray. Let's pray that. So can, can we stand? Yeah. I'm going to invite the band to come back and um, we're going to worship as part of our response this morning. But I think that the challenge to us this morning is that, you know, first of all, there might be some of us who this whole season just reminds us of the dysfunction of life, whether it's family pain, whether it's uh, stuff that has, has gone on in the past, whether it's dealing with disappointments, um, and Christmas is just that ever-occurring reminder of some of that. And I just feel that maybe God wants to minister to some of you uh, who, who feel that. But I also feel there's a challenge to us this morning. There's a challenge to us to think about, you know, in this season where God comes and dwells amongst us, where God comes and presences himself amongst us, that actually we're, we too are to be people who are present in the spaces that we inhabit. That we too are to be the incarnational church. 
And for some of us, that's just like, okay, God, yeah, I'm, you know, I keep saying I'm passing through here or my job is just a stepping stone to something else. But actually, maybe God's saying, no, I want you here. And actually, for the next 20 years, you're going to change the redemptive history of your profession. For the next 20 years, you're going to invest in neighbours and in colleagues. And it's going to change the, the course of their lives. Because you are there. Because you're present in that place. And some of us just don't believe that. Some of us don't believe that could be us. So Holy Spirit, we just ask you to come right now. We just say, come Holy Spirit. Will you come and minister to us, Lord? There was a number of words at the end of worship today. Maybe some of those things are also just pricking in our hearts and just a sense of what God is saying to us this morning. So come, Lord.